Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. Our work includes helping leaders to navigate disruptive trends and developing strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and in the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that our guest today is Sean Castrina, and we're going to be talking about his book, Mindset is Only One Piece of the Puzzle. Sean is a best-selling author of three books, an entrepreneur having started more than 20 companies. He's spoken at some of America's finest colleges and entrepreneurship and business, as well as shared events with Tony Robbins, John Maxwell, and countless other influencers. He's the host of a top-ranked business podcast, The 10-Minute Entrepreneur. Disruption to the norm, unexpected events, uncertain times are things that many of us are facing during the worldwide pandemic. We've seen jobs lost, companies forced to rethink how they've done business and how they continue to stay in business. Leaders are daily faced with tough decisions on how to lead in this new and different environment. Sean joins the show today to discuss his story of overcoming a setback and how he's gone on to start multiple new businesses and the leadership lessons he learned from these experiences. So Sean, first of all, welcome to the show. I'm just glad to be on the show and I'm sure I'll bring some value here as we progress. Thank you. So let's start with your story, including losing your dream job and then starting over as an entrepreneur. Okay, yeah, when I came out of college, I had my dream job in the Washington DC area and I was making great money, was doing well. I was working on a master's degree. It was actually one class away from finishing up my master's, newly married, new house, and a child on the way. Kind of, you know, your little Norman Rockwell thing going. And then there was a change in leadership overnight. The CEO was in his early 70s and they did a transition. And with that, it was like a whole new team in place. And you know, at that point, I my paradigm of you work somewhere and you just work your way up to the top kind of disappeared. So I knew then I would be employed maybe short term, but I would do something that was my own, that I would dictate instead of making somebody else wealthy, I wasn't going to be dependent on anybody else and took a job selling insurance short term, because if you've got pretty good social skills and you're articulate, sales never hurts. It's the easiest way to make money. And I did that while I started. It was funny because it set the blueprint for every business I've done since then, which is I don't start businesses based on passion. Passion is an entrepreneur's mistress. I start businesses based on need, based on are they, could they be profitable? And then I reverse engineer it from there. Just because I like golf doesn't mean I buy a driving range. So I, I started an auto detailing business, which is funny because I've never cleaned a car in my life. It went on to be highly successful. It still exists today. I sold it a few years after that, but I've had them clean my cars here in the last few months called Waxmaster Mobile Detailing. And it kind of put into place my blueprint of branding, very good image, very systematic on how you do things, partnering, which is what I've done through all my businesses. But that kind of set the stage because I made $35,000 passive income that year while I was doing insurance, working about two hours a week in that business, just making sure the systems were in place. And it just kind of gave the blueprint. You don't have to absolutely love what you're doing necessarily. The business is profitable. It'll pay for all the things you love to do. If your business isn't making money, everything you love is going to be not happening anyway. (laughs) So start with profit. 
it showed me how you can delegate yourself completely out of a business because I was working another job. I couldn't be in the business. So it forced me to do things right from the very beginning. I wasn't entangled in the day-to-day minutiae of the company and branding. It taught me if you, if you can make a phone ring or you can, if you can attract customers, you have a business. And if you can't attract customers, you don't have a business. Your idea is not good. You have to attract customers. So it gave me the core pillars of what you need in a business. And that's what I've been writing about and rinsing and repeating. You know, I've started more than 20 companies since then, own multiple seven-figure businesses, eight-figure. And that's kind of the blueprint I've used. Tell us a little bit more about the blueprint. And then I want to come back to starting a business you're passionate about, because I know a lot of people right now are focused on doing work that they find personally meaningful to them. Yeah, I love to break up that thought process. I did an interview with John Tesh and he and I went round about for 15 straight minutes on that question. And then finally at the end, he conceded that his first business that he started was a running shop because he loved running, but he lost money in it. Having a passion for running is not a problem. It's the question is, is it a good idea in the area you're in based on the competition? And is there a big enough market for it? The passion for what you have a passion for I don't discount that. I just don't think every idea, everything you're passionate about makes a good business. I agree. I wonder though about finding a business that is going to be profitable and successful and that's aligned with something you care about. Yeah. I always say when you make money, you can put money into everything you care about. I'm highly philanthropic. (laughs) You know, if you don't make any money, your passion becomes irrelevant. Number one is you're unhappy, you're drained, you're exhausted in the business. So whatever you are passionate about, strap yourself to an unprofitable business and see how much passion you have about anything. You're not going to have any. Number two, make money. Years ago, what was it? Oh, golly, I forgot the timeless book and I Waddles wrote it. It'll, it'll hit me. But the whole point is, he says, you want to make an impact, figure out how to make money. Because if not, you can only scale yourself at a one-to-one ratio. You can only give away so much time if, if you don't, have, when you have money like Bill Gates, you know, giving away billions, he scaled himself millions over because mm-hmm. of the wealth that he has. I'm not disagreeing. I'm talking about for some people and I'm one of them. I have the intersection of I'm really passionate about what I do and we're successful. And I think that's great if you can do that. I think this is how I'm actually finding that book because it's absolutely driving me crazy. But the reason you can marry the two together, let me just come up with any passion I want. Let's say I'm passionate about educating people overseas that don't have education or, or providing water, or let's say I'm passionate about golf. If I have a business that makes me money and gives me a flexibility of schedule, I can participate in any passion I want. I'm just saying the two don't have to marry themselves. Another example, let's take Richard Branson, multi-billionaire, okay? Favorite thing in the world to do, yachting. You know, it's won all the contests, does not own a yachting business, owns an airlines, owns Virgin Records, owns Virgin Phone, you know, Virgin Airlines, does not have Virgin Yachting. I also understand that there are some areas that are best done philanthropically, And I think of Starbucks and the Clean Water Initiative, and this goes back a few years. I don't know what they're doing now, but it is the profitability of Starbucks that allows them to do the work of ensuring there is clean water accessible to different locations in Africa. And the book is The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace D. Waddles. It's one of the legendary books, The Science of Getting Rich. And his whole point was, is that 
start your life off with the ability to journey. If you can learn how to make money at a mass level, your impact is exponentially greater than if you wallow in poverty. Well, and I'm not suggesting that anyone wallow in poverty. Yeah. So there, I think there's a continuum from I could be a person who is passionate about working in a nonprofit, taking water to Africa, because not everyone is going to be an entrepreneur and get rich. Absolutely. And then if I'm on the entrepreneurial side, as long as I can connect the thing I'm passionate about to the business. Yeah, no, I definitely think that, you you know, within your value structure, no matter how you do it, you need to be involved in your passion in some form or fashion. And if you can do that occupationally and or in your private time, however, I'm 100% believing you need to have something outside of everything that you're that you're benefiting the world and you're, you're having an impact on. I think we're, we're in a complete mm-hmm. agreement there. And I want to give an example. I worked with a group yeah. of female attorneys and, and there was a big burnout rate. One of the challenges was the thing I value most in the world isn't what I'm doing. Helping people structure better real estate deals may not be the passion of that person. And they're the lead attorney in that conversation was able to draw the connection you just made. I make enough money that I can put my kids in good schools. We have a safe home. All the things that people who are parents generally want for their families. As soon as they could make that distinction and connect the work they did to the things they valued in life, they were able to move past some of the burnout that was, I'm doing stuff all day long that I don't care about. Yeah. And I, and I do think, you know, as a career, you can, like, if I, if I was in that situation, I could, you have a chance to do pro bono work and you can do whatever kind of look. So you can do 80%, let's say I'm going to do 80% of which really pays me well, but then I take 20% of my time and I'm involved in immigration law or, you know, whatever it can may be, you can kind of do both. Great. I thank you for sticking with me on that point, because I think it is important for us, whether we do something we're passionate about in our jobs or that we can connect that passion, especially when it's doing something meaningful in the world, there are a lot of ways to accomplish that. I'm speaking a lot less about I like to golf, so I should have a job in golf, or I like poetry, so I should be paid as a poet. Some things are hobbies. Now, not for everyone, obviously, there are professional golfers and poets, but for most of us, these are things we do as hobbies and not how we make our living. Yeah. And I think that I do think, and I, I agree with you as well, is that if you're 18 years old, the basic quote that we've always heard, and I believe it's true, if you can make money doing what you love to do, you never work a day in your life. My daughter's a school teacher. Money is oblivious to her for, you know, she makes enough to whatever. She absolutely loves teaching. And that is so energetic for her. So everybody has their, you know, I don't think anybody should be doing something they absolutely disdain every single day of their life for any amount of money. I think it's good for your mental health and and a lot of other things. Yeah, we do have a lot of cases of burnout right now. And there are a lot of people who do work they don't like to pay the bills so they can feed their families. And that is the lack of flexibility a lot of, especially post pandemic. So let's move into then what are the foundations for people who are interested in being either full-time entrepreneurs or want to just do a side gig? What should they be thinking about and doing to ensure they're not going to blow their life savings 
and go back to get a job with no safety net? Yeah, I think the first thing is you never quit a job to pursue an entrepreneurial event, an entrepreneurial idea. I never did. I still don't. So my philosophy is there's 168 hours in a week. You work 40, travel 10, you got 50, you got 138. If you're a go-getter, you'll figure out how to do it. You will. And if you don't figure it out, you probably wouldn't have been a successful entrepreneur in the world. So I challenge you to do too, because I think it's it's the boot camp that you're going to need to know whether you've got it anyway. I think quitting your job is a reward. You don't get to quit your job because you have an idea and you want to run on it. It's the end game. It's the reward. So I think that's one thing I tell people, you're not going to quit your job anyway. So that's going to secure some of the financial things. Number two is you beta test an idea. You never go all in. Entrepreneurs are not crazy risk takers. We take what some people might consider a risk only because people view almost everything as such a big risk, but it's not, what am I putting on? Putting up time and money, right? Time and money at the end of the day. Well, if the, if the time is limited, Okay. Number two is if the, the loss is limited, I don't go into a business and sign a five-year lease on an idea. I beta test. I think pup tent, not dream home. So when I'm getting a business off the ground, the only thing I spend money on is get it off the ground and whatever creates sales, sales. That's, that's the only thing you should be focusing on in a startup is sell, 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 sell. Everything else is all show and no go. So when you go into it thinking pup tent, like just enough to get to, for me to go, you know what? People are buying this. They're buying it for the amount that I'm trying to sell it for. And then you start scaling it at that point. But you, you don't go into anything. Taking a, a business, you know, startup is this. You're betting on an idea. Nothing more, nothing less. I would say as a, a small business, even though we're not a startup, I pilot everything. Yeah. I do invest. And, and in fact, the Voice America radio show and then the subsequent outlets this was a three-month pilot, so the investment was reasonable. Now, I didn't know at the beginning of this how much I would be able to scale it, but at least I had a sense that it was going to be a reasonable investment, not a dreadful failure. Right. You didn't sign a five-year lease. You didn't give a five-year commitment. You know, that, that's all I'm saying is that it'd be great if all that works. Go into a startup with an, an exit ramp. I'm not big on plan B's, but you got to know, okay, if for some reason this isn't everything I thought it would be, I can get out of this alive. That's just being prudent. So I think for listeners, this is absolutely foundational. And it's, it's also dear to my heart because I've seen people, good friends of mine, start businesses when they lost a job or something happened. Worst time to start a job is, worst time to start a business is when you've lost a job. Your confidence is down. You're financially stressed. And then what you do, you take a line of credit on your house or something like that. It's one bad decision after another. Let me give you advice. When you lose your job, I'll give you one piece of advice. You want to be a great entrepreneur? Go get another job. Get another job. Then when you get another job, then start beta testing ideas or your end or your side hustle. Real quick idea on side hustle. Side hustle is not where you work. A side hustle is where you're, you're replacing yourself, but it draws in income. People talk about side hustle. All it is is a part-time job where maybe you get paid a little bit more. That's not what I have in mind. Starting a business when you lose your job is the worst advice you can get, in my opinion. And yet that's what we hear from the media, that people are losing their jobs. So they're the whole gig economy and entrepreneurism being what's going to pull our economy forward. So, so I hear you saying very clearly something I don't hear very often. When you lose a job, get a job and then build your entrepreneurial business 
at the rate it is appropriate to build, which is piloting. Let's say I'm a, I'm a consultant. I don't care what you name the profession. Okay, I'm a graphic designer. I'm this, or I consult. I do this. If somebody will hire me, then I have an insurance policy in essence. Now, again, I have this 168 hours. I can take on work on the side. I can do it at night. I can do it on the weekend. And if I start seeing that, wow, I can do this at 10 hours a week and make what I'm making full time, then I transition. It may only take you six weeks to discover that. But why would you not take a job if you can't find one then? Obviously, but then let's go back to my rules. You don't go in all the way. You don't take, I don't like lines of credit on houses. Okay. I don't mind a credit card because it has a finite amount like 10,000. Okay. And you can figure that out. You got to think pop tent. You want to just replace your income. That's what you're thinking. I lost my job. I'm starting a business. Goal number one, replace my income. So you're going to be 90% of that business getting it off the ground, selling and whatever the case may be. And then you'll start bringing on people. Your number one goal is to replace your income. The other thing I heard you say is scaling quickly. So you're not doing all the work. You're getting other people to help you do the work. So it's not, I love editing. So I'm going to start an editing business and do all the, all the no, editing. I, I wouldn't do any of the editing. All I'd be doing is the front. I'd be getting the accounts, interviewing people that could edit at a fraction of my time. I'd rather make $5 an hour doing nothing than $40 an hour doing it all. I'd rather have eight people doing $5 an hour. Wealthy people try to get other people to do things. If you're a lawyer and you're a $200 an hour attorney, disregard maybe some of what I'm saying. You'd have paralegals do as much as you can. But you you try to get other people. That's how you do a business. If not, you're a solopreneur. And to me, that's not an entrepreneur. I think that's an important distinction because this, I'm going to quit my job to go do something I love. If I love cooking, I'm going to start a restaurant. And then I'm the primary cook or chef. And for some people, that may work. But the failure rate for restaurants is high. And again, some investment required. Let me restate what I hear you saying. One of the fallacies I hear people like leaving businesses and they want to go be coaches since I do some of that work. And I'm in conversations and they say things like, do I need business cards? Do I need a web? Yes, you're running the business and people won't find you unless you have a big reputation. They're not going to appear at your door. So the work of executive coaching firms is to find clients. And I think it's a disservice again to people who go off and get certified in this and other things. Uh, I'll give you a great story of that. John Maxwell, who I think is an incredible writer, but I went to one of his leadership things. I will never forget it. There was probably 400 people in the room, pay $5,000 and you could get your money back after a certain time period. And I'm listening to this two days in and I'm listening to this. I finally went back to his main person and they kind of ushered me off to the side because they didn't want anybody to hear what I was saying. I said, you're teaching people how to coach. You have not taught anyone how to have a business. I go, when are you going to share with your audience how to acquire customers, how to sell customers, how to market? I said, you have a massive, oh, and they were hush. Oh, no, 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 no. And I go, listen, I've been here for two days. I want my money back. This is a massive mistake here. You got everybody, oh, I'm going to teach gardening because I love gardening. How are they going to acquire customers? How much are they going to charge? What is the pricing model? How are they going to sell these people? What it was none of that. None of it was included, but everybody was going to be everybody was going to be a coach when they left. And do what they're to, passionate about. Right, exactly. Be, I was going to beat my head against the wall. There was so not you left. One thing, yeah, I left because there was nothing to do with business. There, nobody was leaving there with a business. 
What's interesting is these are people who could afford $5,000. Yeah. And many of them thought they were going to leave being able to replace part of their income doing something yeah. they cared about. And I just said, why wouldn't you take a day and have it structured around the fundamentals of business? Okay, you're going to be a coach. Top of the page. Business is only three things. It's really, really simple if I would have been doing it. Okay, number one, let me, let's show you how to acquire customers. Really simple. Find somebody out there that's had a coaching business. How do you acquire customers? Boom. That would have been my morning seminar. The afternoon seminar, how do you sell them? How do you price yourself, sell, collect money? Do you get paid every session? Do you get paid in advance? Do you get a return? Whatever. How are they going to collect money? Number three, how are you going to fulfill? How are you going to actually perform what it is you're selling? You're going to meet with them once a week, once a month. I'm just like brainstorming real quickly. If they had one day on that, it would have been a valid event because you taught the, the pillars of business, which you know, it's not rocket science. Can you go into, you just gave us three pillars, one minute yeah. per pillar. Of course. There's only three pillars of business. Every single business, Google, Instagram, every business only does three things. So we'll talk about the first one. The first one is you have to attract customers. So that's what I talk about people that are passionate about something, but they, they don't, there's not enough people interested in what you do. In under 30 seconds, I started my business to the left of my business with somebody who sold trains, everything to do with trains. Person to the right of me sold everything to do with scrapbooking. Both of them went out of business in the first year. My business is around 21 years later. They were passionate, but there wasn't a big enough market for that. They could not attract enough customers at the speed to stay in business. Number two is you have to sell customers. And the first thing that small businesses do is that either the founder doesn't know how to sell, founder doesn't like selling, the founder thinks they're too good to sell, Founder gets Billy Bob, their uncle, to sell because he's really folksy and everybody likes Billy Bob, but he's not a professional salesperson, doesn't know how to close, doesn't know how to follow up. So your sales lacks. And number three is you don't have a system in place to fulfill what it is you sold people. Your deliveries aren't getting there on time. You don't have a follow-up warranty, a system in place to provide the back end of what you sold. So you don't get repeat business. You don't get referral business. They're the three pillars of business. I don't care what business it is. And if you don't do those three things well, you will not have a good business and you will not make money and you will eventually be out of business. So for people getting started, you obviously are able to sell. And again, this short answer, and we can yeah. come back and talk in greater detail. Lots of people starting business don't know how to sell. Then they shouldn't start a business. How about partnering with someone who can? That was going to be my second point. Somebody has to be the salesperson. The only way a business gets to 100,000, which is the first pillar of your if you're climbing a peak, you got to get to 100,000. Tell me how you get to 100,000 if you can't sell, because I don't know how you do it. So one of the two founders better be an incredible salesperson. And I will make the argument that up to 10 million, one of the founders will be the best salesperson. Okay. At best, you'll be able to duplicate somebody as talented as you. But Bill Gates was a salesperson. Steve Jobs was a salesperson. We can keep going. These people move the needle. They were closers. The big Xerox deal, Bill Gates. Okay. Steve Jobs, salesperson. Think about, for anyone who is thinking about starting a business, things I heard, don't start when you're unemployed. Find a way to cover your basic bills. Do this as a pup tent, not the Pyramid of Giza, and have someone who sells. So as we go into break, I encourage our listeners to think about if you are looking at starting a business, can you sell? And if you can't, how do you fill that gap? You are with Maureen Metcalf and Sean Castrina. And we are talking about mindsets being only one piece of the puzzle for entrepreneurship. So let's start with that question of mindsets. You share that it's only one piece. 
I believe mindsets are really important. From a leadership perspective, what are other components that leaders should consider? And it'll be interesting to see how aligned you and I are because we we didn't talk about this before yeah. we got on the air. Yeah, well, regarding mindset, this I want to square away mindset. Let's put mindset on a board. Mindset is an accelerator. It is not a strategy. It is not even a skill. It's an, it accelerates everything you do better if you know how to utilize it. Example, I could do affirmations about basketball all day long. I could sit in the corner. I could, I could do visualizations of me doing all these incredible things with a basketball, but I still can't dribble and with the left hand. Okay, I still can't do it. I still can't dunk. And I'm very limited in my, my skill. I do not have basketball skill. So mindset without skill is irrelevant. Mindset is not a strategy. See, when I start a business, I can be all excited about the business. Now I've got the mindset. I'm optimistic. Okay. Did I do a business plan? What was the strategy in my business? Do I have a way to acquire customers, sell customers, you know, the basics. So I think what happens is, is that we get mindset in the hands of someone with skill and a good idea and talent, that's incredible. Then you go over the top. So it takes a person from that B level to the A plus level. It's an accelerant. It makes everything you do potentially much better. You're much more focused. You have more confidence. You're, the way you view things is much more healthier. But, but again, if you don't have the fundamental skill that you're trying to be good at, it, it's irrelevant. There has to be skill and talent somewhere in that equation, period. There has to be a, a good idea in that equation. You can run endlessly in one direction, excited, but if you're running in the wrong direction, you're still running in the wrong direction and the finish line is over here. I see it so much on Instagram and all these different things is that everybody wants to push mindset. And they're pointing to their head, mindset, mindset, mindset. And whenever I see a course on mindset alone, I know it's crap. Because mindset is one piece. It's a great piece. I want, listen to me, I'm a division one athlete, okay? I use mindset. I never pictured a person ever scoring on me. And when I was in the high school state championship, I wrestled a guy who had never lost. This is an incredible story. He had never lost. I wrestled him. I pinned him in a minute and two and got a division one scholarship. Why? I never pictured a guy ever scoring on me. So I've been doing this every single day, visualizing matches. He made a mistake, but to this day, I don't know how I caught him in the move I did. I believe my subconscious mind had played this out a million times, had already thought how to win if this situation ever presented itself. It's never happened since then. He made a mistake. I win the match. I get a division one scholarship mindset. Now, was I a great wrestler? Yes, up to a certain point. But when you beat somebody who's never lost before, that's a little bit above skill. All things being equal, mindset wins. Mindset wins all the coin tosses. It's interesting because we talk about leadership mindsets and behaviors. To your point, so use something like professional humility. It's important to give credit to others and things like yeah. that. Not too humble because then yeah. you're a wallflower, not yeah. too arrogant. But if I don't have a mindset of humility, I can still appropriate the behaviors. I can still act humble even if inside I'm a bit of a jerk. So to your point, the behavior first and then the, the mindset can build while I'm behaving like a decent human being. I think successful people have common traits. I think leaders, great leaders have common traits. Most good leaders are very confident. They just are. And that's how you know they're a leader because other people follow them. If you're not, who follows somebody who's not confident? 
But here's here's yeah. an interesting example. Yeah. When I'm coaching folks, it's shocking how many leaders have imposter syndrome. They're not as confident. They, they are competent. Yeah. They're not as confident as they appear. So the mindset is not yet there. They'll get there. That's why they're not there yet, because yeah. your great leaders haven't an unbreakable confidence. You can beat on them, but they're resilient. I can take criticism and I, and being at the top, I take tremendous criticism. But at the end of the day, I go to bed, bet, I will bet on me every day, all day. They just have that. I mean, if you look at your most successful people, they have an innate confidence, a resilience. I would say yes to the resilience. And I would say both confidence and humility. It's not an arrogance. Arrogance is when you diminish other people for you to be confident. So you got to put other people down. Confidence is just, hey, listen, if I have to bet on me, I'll bet on me. I think if I'm on your team, I'm going to make your team better. I don't have to diminish all the other people. I love having equally talented people and equally confident people, equally confident people around me. So arrogance is when you have to promote yourself and diminish others. That's classless. You're never going to be a great leader then because nobody's going to want to work with you. And all the people around you that puts up with that crap are going to be low-level people because they're putting up with your nonsense. I, I agree. For listeners, they're nuanced points. When people hear confidence, the interpretation, depending on their life experiences, will range from healthy confidence to complete jerk to some people are understated and confident, and those can look very different. If you're really confident, you don't have to tell anybody. They'll know you're... My wife is a nurse. She's quiet. She's very confident in her core area of competency. It's, it's effortless for her. She's great at it. Her colleagues know it. Confidence just means I genuinely believe I'm good at what I do and I benefit anybody on my team and or around me in my area of giftedness is aware of it. Great so definition. You, right. So if you don't have that, I don't know how you succeed at a great level. And I don't know how you other lead people because you're going to be insecure every time somebody's actually, you're going to be like, oh, that person's actually a lot better than I am. How do you work with super talented people if you, you don't have some level of confidence yourself? One of my first job interviews, they asked me why I was the best person for this job. And my response was, I'm sure there are people better than me for this job. I didn't get that job. <laughs> My son just had an interview, okay? He just graduated from high school, just got a got job for $50,000 a year, just graduated like nine months ago, just sold his first company for $120,000 and just got a job for a very good amount of money. And I told him they were interviewing a bunch of people and it was basically was going to work as a contractor. I said, call them up, however you contact them, tell them you'll, you'll work the first month for free to show them how good you are. He did it, got the job. It's confident. If you're really good at this, Colin, and I know you are, show them. Take the other 20 contestants out of the ring. Do it for free. Show them how good you are. Confident people are willing to bet on themselves. My first job out of college, I agreed to work 90 days for free because I didn't want to start out on the low rung on the ladder. I know my personality is aggressive. You know, my wife says I'm the lion that eats the lion. So I know my personality. I knew I had to work in a bigger firm. So I agreed to work for 90 days for free. That's confidence. I bet on myself that, hey, you don't need to pay me. You'll find out that I'm worth it. I was there for five years. But arrogance and confidence are the completely different things. Arrogance is repulsive. Confidence is, is, is valued and appreciated. Thank you for making that distinction so yeah. clearly. 
you mentioned visualization. I would be curious what that looks like for you, because I know there are a broad range of people yeah. who do visualization. And, and what what is specifically interesting to me is the idea that as I visualize, I'm training my subconscious. Yeah, visualization to me is seeing the final result in its finished form. So whatever it is I want, example, let's say I wanted to launch a business. I would see the storefront, let's say, completely done. I'd see customers going into the store, visualize the registers ringing off the hook, okay? Wrestling, I always pictured my hand going up. You just see your finished result. Like an example, one of my affirmations is I'm sharing the stage with those whose books I've read. That was one of my affirmations. So I have an agent who's helping me with the book launch. And I'm saying this over and over and I'm visualizing, you know, being on stages. He calls me up. He says, listen, we got an event, higher level leader. We got one opening in it. It's John Maxwell. It's Tony Robbins. This is that. I'm a nobody at the time. We got one opening. That affirmation that I've been doing for three years gets fulfilled by somebody I've never met to this day in person. Calls me up on the phone. So we got one opening. We'd like to put you in it. And I get it. I'm just telling you, I, I don't say that affirmation for three years. I don't think it ever happens. And again, I want to make a distinction because I'm also a fan of affirmations and doing the work. I had to write the book. If I don't write the book, I, I'm not in place number 16. Right. And I say that because I've seen people say, you know, I affirm I'm wealthy. And I'm like, yeah, and you're sitting at home, not working, breaking out the sock full of quarters to pay your electric bill. That's See, what I tell people is if your affirmations are genuine, your action list will parallel your affirmations. When I do affirmations and I visualize in the morning the life I want, that five minutes, it gets reflected in my daily list of my, my schedule will reflect my, my affirmations. So when I had a goal to share the stage with those whose books I've read, I was writing a best-selling book at the time and I just had launched it. So without the book, I don't meet this gentleman who launches books and I don't get that spot. And you don't have the conversation about where you want to be. Exactly. Your affirmations and your visualization, when you visualize this final accomplishment, every day you should be doing something action-oriented to make that, in fact, happen. And if you're not, well, then there's no alignment there. You can trick your mind a little bit, but your, mind's, your mind will figure out that you're, you're unworthy of this result because you're not doing any of the effort. So it's not fairy dust and unicorns. Oh, it's... No, absolutely not. When I was talking about wrestling, I was running five miles every day, three miles in the morning and two at night doing sprints. So I was putting in the legwork. Again, it's an accelerant to skill, to hard work, to good ideas. It's an accelerant. It is not the 80% at the bottom, the talent, the hard work, the daily grind. You still have to do, you know, we talk about like Tiger Woods and stuff like that. We forget Tiger Woods was swinging a golf club at age two. You look at all these extraordinarily talented, amazing people, Bill, you know, Bill Gates living in the library, working on computers and programming, you know, at like age nine through whatever. There's always front end work that we don't talk about. Again, thank you. Because when people hear a comment like visualization, some people will get it like you intended it. And other people are at the end of the spectrum saying, oh, I just have to visualize and then I'm done. Visualization will always parallel action. Let's go before the end of the show, because we have limited time left, to the eight unbreakable rules. Yeah, that was my first book, and people can get that for free if you just go to seancastrina.com. 
But I, I wrote a book because I noticed that my businesses, they were doing better than most companies. Nine out of 10 businesses don't make it to year 10. 50% of businesses don't make it to year two. And so I wrote a book called The Eight Unbreakable Rules. And I found that there's kind of eight fundamentals at the time. And one was, why do you want to be an entrepreneur? We always get back to the why, and it is significant. And you need to know why you would be an entrepreneur in the first place, because it's not for everyone. It's typically for the person who wants to be their own boss. They value their schedule. They want to dictate their own income. They're passionate about an idea and or a business and or a problem. They're passionate. There's something that really trips their wire that makes them want to do it. So your, your why you want to be an entrepreneur has to consume you. If not, why not just work for somebody? I mean, a lot less risky. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong. I am so grateful that I have a lot of employees that work for me that don't think like I think because I wouldn't have the companies that I have if they weren't great employees. So you need to know why you want to be an entrepreneur. Number two is you got to vet your idea. I wrote the book, The World's Greatest Business Plan for that very reason, because people run on an idea and it's, it's good in their head, you know, and they expose it to friends and family, but they don't vet it. They don't put it out. They don't test it like you did when we're talking about the radio thing for 90 days. Test your idea. Do some form of a business plan. Beta test it a little bit. Qualify your idea. I always talk about the, you know, the entrepreneur's Bermuda Triangle, why they fail. And one of it is because they never expose their idea to criticism. And so that, that's kind of number two. The third thing is you got to plan for success. I mean, what is your plan for your business? What are you going to do? How are you going to attract customers? What is your marketing plan? How are you going to staff it? You got to have a plan. Where do you hope this business is going to be in five years? How are you going to get it there? Is it going to be in one location or multiple? You want to franchise it. You got to have some sort of a plan. And number four is you, you got to protect yourself and your business. Of course, you know, you start with being incorporated, but if you're going to have a partnership, have a partnership agreement. You got to protect your intellectual properties, your trademarks, your patents, things of that nature. So you got to protect your business. Number five is you got to build a successful team. Very rarely does one person achieve anything of, of greatness. There's always someone there that helps them. Mm -hmm. And all your great companies have great teams. Okay. So you got to build a successful team. You're, and that's where we're talking about arrogance and confidence. Arrogance, you're going to have a hard time building, putting great people around you. Number six, marketing is not optional. In this day and age of the internet, we all think that we can just put something on Facebook or Marketing is a systematic plan to attract and sell customers. Systematic. Picture a conveyor belt. They come in here, they get sold here, they rinse, repeat, come back around. Okay. How are you going to do that? If you don't have a plan to attract and sell customers, you're not going to be in business. Number seven was know your numbers. When I was a child, you know, had a baseball card, you knew all your favorite players, batting averages and all that. And now it would be like in your fantasy league, you know, all the numbers of all the players. Good business people know all the important numbers, what the profit margins on, what their labor rate is based on what they're spending, what their hard costs are. If you only know your numbers when you meet with your accountant every three months, you're not going to be a successful business person. I get a spreadsheet at the end of every single day giving me all the numbers that I believe in my businesses that are important. I call it a dashboard system. It's so that I can see problems before they come. I can see bad trends. So you got to know your numbers. And then number eight is learn from experience. Get mentored, get coaches, get people to help you. People that have been on the journey 
ask for help. I went to a very successful business owner in my area. I, I, he had a good company and I offered to take him to lunch once a month. I told him it was right across the street from his business. And he kind of knew who I was. I was starting a business and came in. I was gregarious, friendly. I bought something from his company before for one of my businesses. He actually owned a sign company. And I said, can I, can I just take you to lunch once a month right across the street and just ask you some, you know, run some ideas by you. He was in his 60s. He was so flattered. I kid you not. I think he looked forward to those lunches more than I did once we got started on. He loved sharing his knowledge. So the easiest way to get better at something is to find somebody who's better at it than you. <laughs> okay? Really simple. Great people hire coaches. Business, why not have a business coach? Why not get mentored? You can do that for free. The SCORE agency where it's retired people that, have, that are in business that can help you score.org, you know, things like Service that. Service core of retired executives. Yeah. Anything. Just, just so you have somebody to collaborate ideas with so that not every idea is just you doing it. You can bounce it off somebody else and, and see if it can get criticized a little bit or get improved a little bit. Well, and that's something, one of the underlying traits I think that is foundational is you are willing to hear the bad news. I have multiple partners in my, I have six partners in my business. And I always say every one of my ideas sounds brilliant in my own head until I expose it to oxygen or other people. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then, then, <laughs> yeah, then brilliant's gone. Yeah. Gone or they make it better. They're like, Hey, had you thought about this? I was going to do one, but I never had a great idea. I was going to run with it. And one of my partners says, do you realize that one piece of machinery that we need is a quarter of a million dollars and we have to have a backup one at all times? There was a half million dollars that I hadn't thought about. <laughs> I was like, I didn't think about that. I had no idea that machine. I was thinking it was like 40 grand. He said, no, it's actually a quarter of a million. And that one you don't have, right? I didn't do that one because I like low cost to entry. That's one of my core values in starting a business. Low cost to entry. So back to your experimentation and pup tent. Yeah, low cost to entry. There, there's no such thing. A quarter of a million dollars is not a pup tent. Not in my world. I will not put over $50,000 in any startup. And I actually prefer ten to 15000 in my beta test. So I wouldn't even put fifty up initially anyway. I would put ten to fifteen to beta test it. And then I would maybe go up to 50 to, to scale it to, a, to see if I can get it to 100, that key critical 100000 I don't like losing money. I'll just be honest with you. And I haven't found anybody who really does. So do you have any big oopses? That you can share with our listeners. One is that what happens is when you start one business, you think you can start any business and make it succeed. If you watch, you know, um, golly, Shark Tank, they all have a lane that they're really comfortable in. You know, Lori loves any like products that she can put on QVC and Hirschback really likes technology. And Mark has his, they all have kind of a lane. We all have lanes. Don't think you're a genius in every lane. So I, you know, thought I could get into retail, though I own very successful service companies. Retail is a whole different animal, whole different animal. You have inventory, you have lines of credit you've got to have, you got employees that you have. We were in a mall at the time. You got to be there certain hours. You can't fudge that. I mean, you got to open up them gates and you got to be there. You get fined. It's totally different. You got sales taxes. There was so many things I didn't know. A year into it, I wanted to, you know, I was losing my mind. I'm like, what have I done? I had such simple business models and service companies that were making me a fortune. And I steered and I, I got out of it. It cost me almost $100,000 to get out of it. And at the time, that felt like $2 million. Know your lane. You're going to find areas that you have a better area of understanding on just how it works. 
the example of that is, I mean, Steve Jobs talked about, he had like, they were at doing like 340 products when he took Apple back over in 98 and he narrowed it down to the iPod. Okay, he was going to focus because it had the screen technology that knocked over the phone, the iPad. I would say it's a law of could not should. Just because I could do something doesn't mean I should do something. So I think as you improve as an entrepreneur, you really very focused on areas that you know you're good at, that you've had some success with. And I think that's important. Whenever I steered very far out of a new, you know, my lane to something that I had no area of competency in, you know, I just was going to make money. I knew I could make money in it. That's never a great motivator. <laughs> you know, I've gone into areas where I am competent because I thought it was what my client needed and it may have been what they needed, but it just complicated. And there is something brilliant in simplicity for smaller. Synergy. Oh, absolutely. Synergy. And I also have like mental, I just turned down a business in the last 30 days where I told somebody, I don't have the bandwidth right now to even give you what little bit you need for me to be involved in that business. And I could make good money on it, but I'm like, I can only keep my eye on so many balls. So as we wrap then, we've got a couple minutes left. Would you tell people where to reach you? You mentioned downloading your book, your first book. You've talked about the latest books. Where do people learn more from you? You've got a top yeah. podcast. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you like to learn about business, the podcast, the 10 minute entrepreneur podcast, it's been top 50 in over 50 countries, top 10 in all business podcasts. I mean, that's a great way to actually hear me teach granularly about business. If you go to seancastrina.com, you can get the eight unbreakable rules for business startup success. You can always DM me on Instagram. I have a lot of followers there, but that's the simplest way to connect with me and, Hopefully this interview was helpful to some people out there. And you said, if I go to seancastrina.com, I can download your book. Yep. Eight Unbreakable Rules. It's the first thing you'll see there. And is that approachable in that I can go through and treat it almost like a checklist or a worksheet? Uh, it, is, it is. And at the end of every chapter, it's I wrap up the chapter and I'll go, action to take, thought to consider, what should you have learned? This is the action you should take based on the chapter that we just went through. It's I write everything almost like a workbook. I like everything to be actionable. Perfect. Because there are, I assume, many people listening who would like to start something. And to your point, you learn from people who have done it. And there are ways to do it without breaking the bank as you're starting. Yeah. And I'll give you another free book. I'll give you the four books. I'll give you my second one for free. That's kind of tucked away. World's greatest business plan.com forward slash free book. I don't think I've given that away three times in probably 200 podcasts, but if you want to do a really simple, but very good business plan, it's a really good book. And I actually took the last chapter to kind of make it easy for you. So world's greatest business plan. Thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. We are at the bottom of the time, so we're going to wrap up. Thank you for listening. Sean, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your books. To our listeners, we hope that you will take advantage of what Sean is offering to help you be more successful or share it with someone that is trying to become an entrepreneur. Please listen again, like us, and share our information. <music>